This is It's All Relative, the podcast where crime and its interaction with the family is picked apart and thrown on its head. I'm Kaylee, your host, and I have some housekeeping to take care of before we get started this week. First off, I have a health matter that has quickly become a serious problem and I will soon be out of commission for an unknown period of time. I'm attempting to get as much done as possible before D-Day, aka surgery, so that there isn't too much of a gap between episodes. Apparently, I cannot control my own body, so if the pod suddenly stops adding new episodes, you'll know why. Second, I have a love-hate relationship with the case I'm about to present to you. Why? Reason one. I have really wanted to do cases that are not necessarily unknown, but definitely lesser known in the true crime world. Not that there is nothing to learn from the more extensively covered cases, but I also feel that there are many cases that are not really getting a voice and they deserve one. Reason two, I really didn't want to leave listeners hanging in the middle of an analysis and I'm definitely not going to have everything done before I go on hiatus. And reason three, I really, really, really was not all that interested in this super duper overdone case. I don't remember how it began, but little by little, bits of information seeped into my consciousness until I could not ignore the questions that were blooming in my brain. So, here I am, and here we are. Before the tale begins, please don't listen if violence to children is an issue for you. Hell, it's an issue for me, and I'm still here. So, get ready for yet another investigation into the murders of Damon and Devin Routier, and the trial of their mother, the infamous Darley Routier. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young will set the mood, and I will see you on the other side. You, who are on the road, must have a code that you can live by. And so, become yourself. Because the past is just a goodbye Teach your children well Their father's hell did slowly go by And feed them on your dreams The one they picked one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they love you It's June 6, 1996 in a new upper-middle-class suburb of Dallas, Texas, called Rowlett. Sometime after 1 o'clock in the morning, 26-year-old Darlie Routier is asleep on the sofa in their family room. Her two boys, Damon, age 5, and Devin, almost 7, are asleep on the floor. The television is still playing while they sleep. Upstairs, Darren, Darlie's husband, and Drake, the 8-month-old baby, are asleep in the master bedroom. At 2.31 in the morning, 911 receives a call from the Routier residence. I am going to play the whole thing. 
have taken out the static and isolated the vocals. I know it's still difficult to tell what's what, but this call is hotly debated and there will be lots of things that I will talk about eventually. So I wanted you to hear it in total. Most importantly for this moment, I wanted you to hear her voice, the desperation and panic in her voice. Knowing the state of her boys at that moment, hearing her terror set my own anxiety rolling. Also, as an aside, who the fuck trains these 911 operators to be such assholes? I have listened to so many of these 911 calls now, and there is the rare few dispatchers who actually sound compassionate. I understand the need to be stern, especially with hysterical people. But Jesus, is it just me? Or does she really sound like a bitch? But back to the case. Darlie had not been sleeping well. There is a suggestion she had postpartum depression. Having spawned two children of my own, I had my own experience with baby blues, so I can relate. According to her statement, Darlie had been sleeping downstairs off and on for about a week because Drake, the eight-month-old, had been fussy at night and had kept her up. The night of June 6th, Darley awoke to a man in the room with her. He took off through the kitchen and into the garage and Darley followed him. She found a knife on the floor and picked it up and put it on the kitchen counter. Probably realizing she was ill-equipped to fight off an intruder, she turned around and went back to the living room, where she found Damon and Devin covered in blood. The room was covered in blood. She is bleeding. Her nightshirt is covered in blood. Darley starts screaming for her husband, Darren. By the time Darren makes it downstairs, she's on the phone to 911. And we've heard that call. And now, let the analysis games begin. The first officer on the scene was a patrol officer named David Waddell. Officer Waddell had been hanging out in the car park at the local Baptist church when he heard the fire tones go out. Fire tones are the emergency alerts that go out to first responders in this part of Texas. 
Officer Waddell starts his cruiser and heads over to Eagle Drive where the routiers live. Note, I say, he made his way. As far as anyone can tell, he did not actually radio his plans or update his location with dispatch. During the 911 call, Darley is having conversations with Darren and Waddell, which is one reason why it is so confusing to listen to. You can hear the dispatcher tell Darley several times to go let the police officer into the house, but Darley sounds a bit bewildered. That is because Waddell, a police officer, is already there. It's just not high on her list to figure out what is going on because she has several people talking to her at the same time and she's more worried about where the hell the ambulance is. Waddell reaches the scene somewhere between two and three minutes after he hears the call and he arrives while Darley is still on the phone with 911. The Routier's house is on the corner of the street. The street actually makes an extra wide arc on the opposite side of the Routier's home probably to give the houses on the opposite corner extra room for their driveways. Waddell testifies that he parked his vehicle on the north side of the house in that curve, and when he got out of his car, he saw a shirtless, shoeless man running across the lawn of the call-out address. Waddell pulled his gun and approached that man, whom he discovered was Darren Routier. There is something wrong with this testimony right off the bat. 1. The officer that was second to arrive on the scene, who is now Lieutenant Walling, and who was actually dispatched to the location, says that Waddell's cruiser was parked on the same side of the street as he parked his cruiser, that being the other side from where Waddell says he parked. Even more of a problem is Darren Routier's testimony that he was inside the house trying to save his sons when Waddell arrived. Waddell's testimony is that, after meeting Darren on the lawn, he and Darren enter the Routier's house. Waddell sees some blood on the entryway and Darley on the phone, holding a towel to her neck. Darren goes across the room to what I think was Devin. It's hard to tell because Waddell says child in his testimony. Waddell has to navigate, I think, Damon's body to get in the room and he immediately starts to interrogate Darley about what happened. Darley says she didn't know who did it, but whoever it was went out through the garage and she pointed to where the garage was. Then Waddell says that he told Darren to give CPR to the child that he's actually standing near, and he tells Darley to get towels to stop the bleeding of the child near her. Darren does what he's told, but Darley is not doing what she's been told. She is still screaming to get help. Maybe on the phone, he's not sure and she says the guy is in the garage. Waddell is in the doorway to the kitchen at that point, nearing the garage, so he goes further into the kitchen about halfway and tries to see if he can see into the garage, but he can't. So Waddell goes back to where he was near the doorway and starts asking Darley for a description. Not try to get her to help her dying child, he tries to get a description of the guy. Darley tells him that the guy had on a black shirt and a ball cap and blue jeans. She also says that she fought with him right about where they were currently standing by the kitchen entry. Waddell then tries again to get her to help one of the children, but Darley doesn't do it. Waddell then waits for another officer to show up. The other officer happens to be Sergeant Walling, now Lieutenant Walling, which he says isn't too long after that conversation. 
Now, contrary to Waddell's testimony, Darren says he was already giving the boys aid when Waddell arrived. He didn't need to be told. And Darren had years of first responder training behind him, so I tend to believe this account. Darren also testified that Darley was also doing what she could for the boys with towels, but unlike Darren, Darley knew nothing about CPR or emergency medicine. You can even hear her on the 911 recording respond angrily, I've got him. It sounds like she's responding to someone, probably Darren, telling her to help one of the boys. You know what you don't hear on that 911 recording? Officer Waddell. Some people say they can hear him. Other people say that they can hear Darren. Both are a little bit difficult to hear at all. I also want to add that the original 911 call was really, really difficult to understand. It has been reconstructed. And then the one that you are hearing on this podcast is the one that that was heard in the courtroom. Again, I said I did do some altering to it so you could hear her voice better. I took out the static, which was terrible. and made it really hard to hear anything. But I also want to reiterate that this is not the original recording. So there may be more on that, but it's almost impossible to hear it because of all of the static. Okay, so you also don't hear Darley talk on the 911 call about what the intruder looked like or about her fighting with anyone. She does give kind of a vague description and it sort of sounds like she's talking to somebody about who attacked her. So that may have been in response to Waddell. From Waddell's testimony, all this happened before Walling arrived, and therefore Wall Darley was being recorded by 911. And the last bit of info that makes this cop a bit untrustworthy, Mikhail from Pixabay, drumroll please. Waddell didn't take any notes. Okay, yes, neither did Darley or Darren, but Waddell is an officer of the law. His job is to be reliable, to give aid to those in need of it, and to accurately document it for the case files. Do. Your. Job. So the paramedics arrive. Jack Colby was the first on the scene, along with his colleague, paramedic Coleman. Colby testified that he carried Damon to the ambulance, but he expired almost as soon as he was put on the gurney. He and Coleman transported Damon to Baylor Medical Center in Dallas, but Damon did not revive. They left behind their other colleague, Brian Koshak, who assessed Devin as deceased. He gave aid to Darley and sent her off to the same hospital as Damon in the backup ambulance. At the time the ambulance left, her blood pressure was 140 over 80, and Koshak had assessed her as not in shock. Just FYI, recently I've had quote-unquote, high blood pressure readings that look just like that reading. 135 over 79, 144 over 82, or you get the idea. Like, the nurses were wary of the reading, but not ready to send me to the cardiologist just yet. So, the Paris saying that her blood pressure is fine is a bit sus to me. When the ER trauma doc when Alejandro Santos looks at Darley's wounds, he assesses her as having superficial wounds. Now, this is a classic problem of the scientific term confusing the hell out of everyday people. A long time ago, I learned this lesson. I don't remember who it was, but I remember the violent tirade he had had when he spewed the definition of superficial. 
superficial means literally on the surface. In the vernacular, superficial means not serious, not severe. So everyday use, we mean that person or that wound is not serious. It's not severe. But Santos is not using the vernacular. In fact, Dr. Santos says many times in his testimony, and I quote, Yes, sir, the medical description, that's a superficial wound, end quote. Santos is saying that he's giving the medical definition. He's not connoting the severity or assigning a value to the wound. I think Dr. Santos is one of those pedantic people who insist on having all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. The kind who make brilliant surgeons but annoy the hell out of everyone else. The point here is that superficial is not an indicator of severity, at least not necessarily. I mean, you get scratched by a poison dart and you have a severe superficial wound. Darley's knife wounds were not deep, but the neck wound was long and nicked the carotid sheath, which is the fibrous tissue covering the carotid artery. She had aubergine-colored bruises all down the underside of her arms. There's some debate on this, so we'll talk about that later. A stab wound to her arm and slices on her palm of her fingers. They took her CBC at the hospital when she arrived. And then they did it again the next day. Dr. DeMaio, who was a defense expert, testified about this in court. Quote, by the next day, it had dropped two points. That's her hemoglobin. By the next day, it had dropped two points from 11.6 down to 9.6. And what happened was, is that she had lost a significant amount of blood from this injury. And, but it's not initially reflected. That is, what happens is, is that when you lose blood, your body compensates for it by mobilizing fluid from outside the bloodstream and pours it in. In addition, when you go to the hospital, you know, they run those IVs and they're putting in fluids. So what happened is, is that her hemoglobin appeared relatively normal when she came in because the blood had been not diluted by those fluids. The fluid came in and it dropped. And what it meant was that she had lost a significant amount of blood from those wounds. And in fact, one of the diagnoses was acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, which meant she had lost a lot of blood. Question. Okay, Dr. DeMaio, what is your evaluation as regards to the seriousness of that neck wound? Answer. About another millimeter or two, and she would have been dead. It would have cut right through the carotid artery. In theory, you could put pressure on it to stop it, but you know... In a real-life situation, people aren't trained like physicians, and she would have bled to death, end quote. I think it's important to note that detractors say that Dr. DeMaio was the defense witness and not Darley's actual doctor. There's also debate whether her neck wound showed hesitation marks and whether it was just close enough to the carotid to seem dangerous. In other words, did she do this to herself? To this I add, everyone forgets about the necklace. Darley had on a gold necklace that got in the way of the knife and was not only dented in two places, but it was also embedded in the wound in her neck. The necklace seems to have stopped the knife from going further into her neck. Could Darley have done this to herself? Did she kill her children? Honestly, I don't know, but the information in this episode is just the tip of the iceberg. Over the course of God knows how many episodes, I will be picking this case apart to get an idea of what the hell actually happened, and maybe some of the why. Contact info is in the show notes. 
Damon and Devin's favorite song by Coolio, We'll See You Out. And I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it. Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of. You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking. Or you and your homies might be lying in chalk. I really hate the trip, but I gotta low. As they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke, fool. I'm the kind of cheater little homies wanna be like on my knees in the night, saying prayers in the street light.